Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to History of Europe Key Battles. This is the concluding part of the Battle of Khotin, part 4 of 4. To get the most out of this episode, you might first want to listen to the first three parts in this set. But if you have already done so, or you don't mind, then let's begin. Last week I described the build-up to the Battle of Khotin, 1621. We left the Ottoman Sultan, Osman II, at the age of just 16, leading a massive army northwards from Istanbul towards the Polish frontier. No Sultan had led his troops in person since Mehmet III's a reluctant appearance at the Battle of Kerezza in 1596. The young Osman seized the opportunity to show that a sultan could still be a warrior king. Wary of the vacuum of power this would leave in Istanbul, he took the precaution of having his brother Mehmet, next to him of age, murdered before he set out. His uncle Mustafa remained alive, as did his younger brothers, protected by their mother. Osman set out on his campaign in 1621, but his army lacked enthusiasm, even more so because of the inclement weather. Its size is estimated at over 100,000 soldiers, the largest army into Europe for many years. It included a contingent of Tartars and 62 cannon, including 15 heavy siege cannons. At the head of the Polish forces, about 33,000 strong, with 28 cannon, was placed a well-respected military commander, the Grand Hetman of Lithuania, Jan Chodkiewicz. In order to repel the Turkish invasion, the Polish king Sigismund III appealed to the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Theophanes, with a request to persuade the Zaporozhian Cossacks to join against the common enemy. Theophanes' appeal brought forth an answer from the Cossacks, who agreed to provide a large force to help. Sigismund was unable to obtain any help from his Habsburg or other Western allies, as their forces were by now occupied in the Thirty Years' War. The combined 
Commonwealth army was much smaller than that of the Turks and had far fewer cannons. They adopted a defensive position, camping by the fortress of Khatin on the right bank of the river Dinister as it flowed south-eastwards. They were protected by an escarpment to the north and the river to the east, forcing the Turks to approach them from the south or the west, where the Polish army strengthened their defence by building earthworks. The Cossacks arrived on site only a day before the Turks did, so didn't have time to build up many fortifications for themselves. They quickly set up two lines of carts as defence, behind which they began to dig trenches. Osman arrived at the head of his army on September the 2nd. Without waiting for the whole of his immense army to arrive, he ordered an immediate attack the same day. The start of the battle was heralded by the sounds of heavy cannon fire as the Turks showered the enemy camp. After the bombardment, thousands of Janissaries began their assault and headed towards the ramparts. The Grand Hetman, Jan Khodkovic, attempted to provoke the Turkish vanguard into a fight, but instead the Turks attacked the less well-defended Cossack camp. The Cossacks fought off the attack bravely, backed up by the Polish-Lithuanian infantry. The next day, the Turks attacked again, while during the evening and late night, the Poles and Cossacks worked to build up their earthworks. On the 4th of September, with the majority of the Ottoman army having arrived, they began a full-scale assault. They surrounded the enemy camps on three sides. Meanwhile, Tatar units forded the Dniester River and cut off the Polish army's supply and communication lines. They also launched cavalry raids deep into Polish territory. The Turks attacked the camp four times, but each time were repulsed. After the final Turkish assault at sunset, the Cossacks launched their own counter-attack. They managed to penetrate the Turkish camp, but became distracted, plundering the Turkish tents. Seizing advantage of that moment, the Sultan's soldiers rallied and ousted the Cossacks from their own camp. The Turks began to prepare for a siege, and Sultan Osman set up his tent on a nearby hill. An eyewitness by the name of Ozent, who was a translator for the Polish army, wrote the following. Quote, I saw the spot where the Sultan had been sitting and watching the events during the battle and during the attacks. This spot was on top of a high hill. The infidel Tartars captured servants as they went unsuspecting to collect wood or hay in the vicinity of the camp. They brought the servants before the Emperor to be interrogated. The Sultan questioned the captives, then ordered their throats to be cut in his presence, and killed the men by having them thrown down the high hill. Despite being well outnumbered and outgunned, the Commonwealth Army fought back hard. On a night of September the 6th to the 7th, the Cossacks made a sally against the Tatars, who suffered many casualties until they were rescued by a Turkish relief force. The following day, the Turks launched several more attacks, which lasted many hours. 
At one part, they reached the ramparts of Khotin fortress and themselves began to plunder. The Polish cavalry soundly counter-attacked and repulsed the Turks. Fighting continued for the next couple of days, but with less intensity. The Ottomans changed the tactics. They reduced the direct attacks on the Polish-Lithuanian defence because of the number of casualties they were suffering from. They attempted to tighten the siege while shooting cannon at the defenders and cutting off the roads and supply routes. On September the 11th, the Lithuanian commander, Jan Hodkovich, aged about 60, became very seriously ill. Nevertheless, he led the Polish-Lithuanian army out again, hoping to fight in an open field. The Turks declined battle and focused their efforts firing cannon at the Cossacks. Skirmishes took place on the left side of the Dniester River, where some units of Ottoman artillery had crossed a newly constructed bridge. A large contingent of Tatars attacked from the northern side across the river, but were repulsed. Heavy fighting continued in a similar fashion until September the 22nd, when a short break took place. The Sultan was becoming increasingly frustrated at the failure to make a breakthrough, and fired some of his top commanders. Then that night, in a daring raid, the Cossacks again attacked the Turkish soldiers defending their bridge. The Turks were caught off guard and suffered many more casualties, and the Cossacks returned to their camp in high spirits. The Commonwealth Army, however, suffered a setback on September the 24th, with the death of their leader, Jan Hodkovich, from illness. Hoping to capitalise on this, the Turks conducted another heavy assault the next day. But their leader's death, rather than demoralising them, spurred the Christians to fight harder. After exceptionally heavy fighting, the Turks were eventually repulsed once more. During another lull in the battle, the next couple of days, the first snows of winter began to fall. The Commonwealth Army was beginning to run out of both ammunition and food, and suffering casualties from disease and hunger. However, the situation in the Turkish camp was not much better. Murad was also not helped by the lack of success and the heavy casualties. After one more full-scale effort on September 28th, completing nearly a full month of intensive fighting, the Turks finally decided to offer negotiations for an end to the battle. Their decision was also influenced by the carefully circulated rumour spread by the Poles that 20,000 Don Cossacks, subjects of the Russian Tsar, were coming to help and support the Christian forces. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For the next few days, a few minor skirmishes occurred. Then Polish wagons loaded with food and ammunition finally broke through the Tatars patrolling the east side of the river and arrived at the camp at Hotin. Finally, on the 8th of October, the two sides agreed to end the fighting. The Commonwealth Army, critically with the help of Cossacks, had bravely managed to hold out against a much larger army and forced the Ottomans to return home empty-handed. The Polish-Lithuanians are estimated to have suffered 5,000 casualties, and the Cossacks perhaps 6,000. Losses for the Turks were much greater, maybe 40,000 in all. The memoirs of the Battle of Khotin, recorded by Jakub Sobieski, in due course inspired perhaps the most celebrated epic poem in Polish literature. Vaslav Patotsky's Wojna Okuczymska, The War of Shakim. To quote some of the text, quote, White gleamed the hills by the banks of the Dniester, as the Turks drew close with marvellous speed. Arranged his pavilions in endless array, when Osman looked down and viewed our lines, like a ravenous lion bearing his claws with bristling mane and quivering tail. Hungry for gore, he eyed his prey, which lay like a bison stricken on the plain. In their midst, the Yankahaga, in peacock plumes, sent his fiery regiments to the fore, astride his white Arabian steed, in a cloak of gold beneath a canopy of feathers. Under the Ottoman bunchuk, with its crescent moon, he blazed like a comet between the stars. Besides the Janusvis, to left and right, we looked on wonders strange to our eyes, of fearsome elephants with trunks and pointed ivories, each bore thirty archers in lofty towers. There stood the wondrous moors, ranged in gloomy clouds. Out of their swollen lips, and faces black as pitch, shine pearly tusks as bright as ice, like the sparks that glitter on a charred log. Here stood the Mamluks in broad white robes, scattered across the field like a flight of swans, besides the ravens, and as for ordnance, they had surrounded their camp with cannon which crowded the ditch and breastworks. Thundering beyond belief, Hodkovich himself, our old commander since he joined the trade of Mars, had never seen such mortars that shook the very ground as they belched forth short of well nigh sixty pound. Under the terms of the peace treaty agreed at Khotin, Cossack raids on the Ottomans were to stop as were Tatar incursions against the Commonwealth, where the Commonwealth agreed not to interfere in Ottoman Hungary or Transylvania. As for Moldavia, a compromise was agreed. The local ruler, the Hospodal, the subject to the Ottomans, was to be a Christian, and approved by Poland. Both the Ottomans and Poles went home and claimed victory, although in truth both sides paid a heavy price for the conflict.
when the Turkish army arrived back in Istanbul, the ignominious withdrawal from Khotin was celebrated as though it had been a great conquest. The Sultan's scribes composed letters of victory, and literary works extolled the campaign as such. But in truth, Khotin had strained Osman's relations with his elite regiments to limit, and there was growing insubordination among the Janissaries and the cavalry. Soon after his return to the capital, Osman announced he intended to undertake pilgrimage to Mecca with a few troops. Rumours swirled around that he was planning to replace his palace regiments or even move the capital to Cairo. On the 18th of May, 1622, the day that Sultan Osman was due to set out on his journey, a military insurrection erupted in the capital. The heads of the Janissaries and the Sultan's cavalry marched to the Hippodrome and issued a demand for the heads of the Grand Vizier and other courtiers. Osman refused to sacrifice his officials, but he soon lost control of the situation. The Janissaries brought out from the Topkapi Palace Osman's uncle Mustafa, who had been Sultan before. Osman, unaware of the scale of the insurrection, went to the official residence of the Janissary Commander-in-Chief, hoping to find their officers who could be bribed to support him. But he was captured by rebels. They dressed him in rags, set him on a horse and took him to the fortress of Yedekula, where he was strangled to death. Murdered at the age of just 17, Osman II had done his best to assert himself and fulfil his role as a warrior prince. The young sultan had made some mistakes, but instead of being allowed to develop in the role, he was replaced by a weak-minded puppet, easily manipulated by the courtiers and janissaries. It was a sad and premature demise for a young sultan who had shown surprising energy and effectiveness in his short reign. Osman's murder was the first regicide in Ottoman history, but the second was not long to follow. Locked up in the palace harem, Mustafa was clearly insane and unfit to rule. One year and four months later, he too was strangled and replaced as sultan. This political instability did nothing to help the Ottoman Empire with its many challenges. As for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, it was evident to all the result would not have been possible without the Cossacks. Books that appeared soon after the battle lionised their leader, Sahedachny, whose monument stands today in Kiev, at the head of the street named after him as one of the greatest Polish warriors. The Cossacks' military achievement allowed them to reassert their political and social agenda. They had come a long way from small bands of fishermen and trappers foraging in the steppes to settlers of new lands, and then a cohesive military brotherhood that regarded itself as a distinct social order and demanded from the government not only money, but recognition of their military status. The Poles could benefit from them militarily and economically, only if they could manage to accommodate their demands. But that would prove to be no easy task. Although Poles and Cossacks had stood together at Khotin, tensions between the two sides and the southern steppes increased further. 
the Polish government demanded that the Cossacks cease their raids against the Ottomans and Tatars. Their crackdown on a series of Cossack rebellions left a heritage of bitter hatred. For their part, the Zaporozhian Cossacks felt betrayed by their own registered Cossacks, who often sided with the Poles, and they felt especially betrayed by the King of Poland, who seemed ever ready to call upon their services for campaigns in Moldavia, Muscovy or Sweden, but failed to deliver his promises of greater privileges or payments. The problem was that even if the king had wanted to fulfil those promises, he would not have been allowed to by the nobles. Part of the problem was religious, as the Cossacks took upon themselves the role of defenders of the Orthodox faith against the Catholic Polish king, and the Polish sponsorship locally of the Uniate Church, which attempted unsuccessfully to bridge the difference between the separate faiths. In the Treaty of Kurakove, in 1625, the Poles forced the Cossacks to accept a register of just 6,000 men, most under the Crown Hetman's command, ready to campaign when and where he wanted. These terms proved impossible to enforce, and when an armistice with Sweden was signed in 1629, thousands of Cossacks returned home to Ukraine to find that they faced encirclement if they were declined to be registered. Major Cossack rebellions erupted in 1630 and 1637 to 1638, and in the wake of the latter, the Polish king primitively reduced the Cossack register to just 2,000 and ended the Zaporozhians' rights to elect its own hetman and other military leaders. This period thus left the Zaporozhian Cossacks with a deep-seated hatred and distrust of the Poles combined with an ingrained historical memory of their own courageous hetmans, their successful campaigns against the Crimean Tatars and Ottoman Turks, and their ability to circumvent Polish aristocratic control over their lives. It was this era, the 1630s to be exact, on which Nikolai Gogol based his famous novel of Cossack revolt against Polish rule, Taras Bulba. Nevertheless, the city of Kiev was undergoing a revival at this time which would make it once again the centre of Rus-Ukrainian culture, where many works of literature, history and religious polemic were published, along with texts for the growing number of schools in the region. The Commonwealth leadership earned prestige around Europe for their brave resistance against the Turks. However, the result was achieved at a significant cost. At the same time as conflict was raging on Poland's southern borders, a Swedish army led by their young king, Gustavus Adolphus, was attacking from the north. The Swedes besieged the city of Riga, which fell on the 25th of September, 1621, at the same time as the Battle of Chotin. The war in the south meant that King Sigismund of Poland did not have the resources to prevent the loss of Livonia. But that story is connected to the wider European conflict known as the Thirty Years' War, which I will come to in the next episode. I can't yet promise when that next episode will come, 
but I am working on it, and I look forward to presenting to you the history of the Thirty Years' War. In the meantime, if you like this podcast, please give it a review on iTunes or another podcast reviewer. I look forward to getting back to you soon. But until then, all the best and goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.